All right, if you have a Bible or a device, let's try to get used to saying that, open it to the, the letter to the church at Rome, the book of Romans. If the New Testament were a mountain range, and say so you could kind of look at it, uh, as a range of mountains, the letter, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, would be the tallest mountain. And the way that this book breaks down, the way that this letter breaks down, there are sections. Paul and just the the guy's brilliant, and the way that he lays out what this thing called Christianity is is sort of like climbing the mountain for the first eight chapters. And and if you looked at the New Testament as a mountain range, and Romans being the tallest mountain, chapter eight would be the peak, life in the spirit. Because, folks, there is absolutely no way that any of us could have understanding. The Holy Spirit's our teacher. That we could be able to apply, because the things of God are foolishness to the natural man, that we would be able to walk out, to walk in and to walk out our faith, short of the work of the Spirit. So the way that this, in the broadest sense, the first seven chapters are, well, the first eight chapters are, are highly instructional. We'll look at that, the difference between teaching and preaching as we go along. They're highly instructional. They're, they're highly doctrinal. The, the central doctrines of the Christian faith are contained here. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about Israel. It's as though it's a parenthesis, a giant parenthesis in the middle of Paul laying this treatise of Christianity out. And then chapters 12 through the middle of 15, roughly, are all about applying the practical walking out of the things that he's laid out in the first eight chapters. Uh, I love chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, by the mercies of Christ, I beseech you, which means I beg you, please, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's how it's rendered in uh, one translation. The point is, is that uh, this book, more so than any other book in the New Testament, tells us what it is to be a Christian, why it is we believe what we believe. It's sort of, and if you're a guy, you'll connect with this, it's sort of looking under the hood, (laughs) seeing what makes Christianity run? What, what is it? How do we operate? And if you're a woman, it would be as though you're, you're looking at this as, as just a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful letter uh, that gives us the essence of what it is to be a Christian. So as we go through here, as we crack this open, and as we look at it today, we probably will get as far as reading the first seven verses. I'm not going to uh, do an exposition on them today. We're going to get into an introduction on this book, and then I'm going to give you an overview, a review. We're going to fly, we're going to back way up and fly over the whole book and take chapter by chapter and break it down so that you have an idea when we do get engaged in the actual unpacking of what these things are, that you'll have sort of a point of reference. So the first thing we want to look at here is to whom was this letter written? And simply, in verse 7, in chapter 1, tells us, Paul says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. The word saints there means holy ones, set apart ones. And and essentially, when he's talking about to the church at Rome, he's not talking about a building. 
This is a tent for the temple, and I'm grateful to have it. But we are the church. The ecclesia, the, the call that one's a set apart one. So he's writing to the church. Very important that we understand that he's writing to Christians here, and this is Christian stuff. He's not writing to an unbelieving world, although the unbelieving world does well to pay attention to the things that are laid out here. However, this is stuff that is meant for Christians. This is stuff that's meant to deepen and to broaden our understanding. So that's to whom it was written. It was written to a church in Rome, Rome, Italy. And the church, it was probably a group of churches, a group of house churches, because that's how they did church in that day, very much like they do in in other countries, especially countries that are oppressed. We could end up being a house church at some point. (laughs) Not going to get into all that, but it's true. I mean, uh, there was persecution in the first century. Uh, It had broken out partially when this was written. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, and then it would break out greatly towards the end of the 60s in uh, in the empire, in Rome, in Israel, and other parts of the empire. So the second thing we look at is who wrote this book and this letter. And, and there's really no dispute. Scholars don't dispute that the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote it. Actually, he didn't write it. <laughs> he dictated it. Uh, we're told in, in, at the end of the book that there was a, that he had a scribe, a guy by the name of Tertius. And, and, and I picture Paul pacing the floor. Uh, he was there in, in the home of a guy by the name of Gaius. Uh, we're, again, we'll get into that. But he's, I picture him pacing back and forth, maybe stroking his beard and saying, well, well, put this down or, you know, change that to this because it's more clear or, you know, and just as the Holy Spirit is illuminating his understanding, He's seeing to it. He's the author of this book. Gaius may have, wrote, may have written it, but Paul's the author. A bit about Paul's life. This is a, he is a fascinating, fascinating man. Uh, perhaps more used of God than anyone since Moses up until the date that he was walking the earth. And he was used to promote Christianity throughout the empire. He was an interesting guy. He had dual citizenship. He was born in a place called Tarsus, a city called Tarsus. It was in the province of Cilicia. Cilicia, northwest of Israel, was uh, it, it, it was where modern-day Turkey is now. But he was a Jewish guy. He had a Jewish family. So you could look at it as Paul's a Turkish guy born from a Jewish family. And so he was both a citizen of Rome because of where he was born and he was a Jew. He was uniquely equipped to be able to carry this, his ministry out to the Gentile world. Primarily his ministry was to the Gentiles and that's anybody that's not Jewish. Although he had a great burden for the Jews. There's a lot in Romans about that. And, and he reached, he, when he would go to a town, he would go right into the synagogue because he understood Judaism and he knew how to relate the things of the Old Testament to Christ. And so he would reason from the scriptures. So he, he's, uh, like I said, a Jewish guy, a Hebrew, and, uh, and a Gentile. It came from a Gentile area. Uh, Saul was his Hebrew name. Now, very often we see in God's word, like with Abram becoming Abraham and, and so on, uh, we see people's names change. Well, Saul was his Hebrew name, probably, and we don't know if it was his namesake 
the first king in Israel, who <laughs> didn't really have a great reputation, King Saul, but they both were from the tribe of Benjamin. So there may be some connection there in the consideration for his name. But after his Damascus Road experience, we see his name changed to Paul. And that's the Greek equivalent of Saul. He reveals something about his life in Acts chapter 22. I'll read verses 3 through 5. He says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Now, when he's speaking, he's speaking to the leaders in, in Jerusalem. So he's making a reference. I was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was like, he was the teacher's teacher. He was, he was an important guy. And so Paul's saying, I got my education from the finest. And uh, in, in Philippians chapter three, he says, I counted all as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. At any rate, he says at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous towards God as you all are today. I persecuted this way. Now the way was a synonymous with the early church. It was called the way. If you see that in the book of Acts, it's mentioned several times. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. In short, he's saying, I was one bad dude. And uh, yeah, that's modern vernacular, but he was. He loathed Christians. He loathed the work of Christ. And he set his jaw against the church and he was active in his persecution. And then, (laughs) and I'll paraphrase from here on out, I'm not going to take too long to go through the different passages, but he's miraculously converted. As we know, he's, he's riding his horse. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, as he talks about here, to bring in chains those who were there to Jerusalem so that they could be punished, put to death. He's there and, and the light flashes about him. He's not from his horse. He's blinded. And those words come from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou? I love the King James on that. Why persecutest thou me? Not why are you picking on my people? But why are you picking on me? Fascinating. We see in that that Jesus is very concerned about people that pick on his people. He takes it personally. So he's, he's on his way there to arrest these uh, Christians. And, and he, after his conversion, he immediately begins proclaiming the gospel. He is a changed man. The scales fall from his eyes. After narrowly escaping death in Damascus, <laughs> he spent about three years, we're told that he spent about three years in a place called Nabatean, Arabia. Uh, it was to the south and to the east of the Dead Sea. If you remember back in Abraham's day that his the woman that he took, Hagar, his wife's handmaiden, and he took her, they had a baby, Ishmael, and they were, Hagar and Ishmael were banished, it says, to the wilderness of Paran, roughly the same area where Paul goes now, and uh, he goes off to Arabia. And during that time, he received much of the doctrine that he had as a result of direct revelation from Christ. Uh, the Lord met him there. We don't know a lot about it, but we do know that in Galatians chapter 1, he is defending his apostleship. 
And as he defends it, he's saying, I receive these things directly from the Lord. That's one of the qualifications for an apostle. People were critical of him saying, well, you came later. You came after Jesus had died, was crucified, resurrected. How could you be an apostle? And he's saying, no, no, no. I was taught by him directly. I was given this instruction supernaturally, divine revelation. Yes, absolutely. And so he did business with the Lord there in Arabia. Now, as far as Rome goes, he had planned to come to Rome for years. In in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. It's important to note here, folks, that he didn't plant this church. This is a church he had not been to. He was concerned for the church. He knew people that were there. We see that uh, in the close of the letter where he's essentially connecting with those that he knew. But this wasn't a church that he had planted. And Romans chapter 15 gives us the main reason why it took him years uh, to get around to going to Rome. And he wanted to go to Rome on his way to Spain, we're told. We'll see that as we study this book. He would have no idea at this point that he would get a one-way ticket to Rome in chains. And so chapter 15 tells us why he was much hindered. Uh, for years. In, in verse 20 of chapter 15, he said, he said, I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. In other words, this is an existing church. This is a work that's going already. This is something that you have solid leadership. I'm sure he got reports back. He did from different ones as they communicated throughout the empire. And he was confident that this church was in good shape. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he wanted to see them and yet was hindered because he was carrying out the work of the ministry. Uh, I've thought in times past, I wish I could do everything that I would like to do. (laughs) There is just absolutely not enough time to do that. And so rather, I want to devote my time, I want my life to be devoted to what God has for me to do. I want to fulfill the ministry he's given me. And yes, there are times where that changes and it morphs into different ways, different things. And yet that's what he's saying. It was more important for me to fulfill the ministry that God gave me than to come and visit you, Romans. So when he wrote this letter, he was in Corinth. Uh, Chances are very good that that's where he was when he wrote it. Uh, And he was on his way. He was on his third missionary journey. It's towards the end of that journey when it's believed that he wrote this and he was he had collected an offering from the churches in the region to take back to the, the, the church in Jerusalem because they were poor, they were very heavily oppressed at that time. And so he is headed for Jerusalem, but he makes a brief stop in Corinth and that's where we believe that he wrote this. Now, after that, he leaves and he heads back to Jerusalem, stops at a place called Miletus, a couple other places too, but... Miletus is very significant. It's out of Acts chapter 20, where we see him on his travels back to Jerusalem. And and while he was at Miletus, he had called for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come down and meet him, probably because they wanted to get away. I think it's kind of a pastor's retreat or whatever, you know, because if he went to Ephesus, he was very well known and he wouldn't be able to do the work with the guys that he wanted to do. So they meet him in Miletus. That's where they, they weep because the Holy Spirit had already showed Paul that Chains and tribulation awaited him when he got back to Jerusalem, and they did. 
So he heads back to Jerusalem. He's falsely accused when he gets there. He's accused of taking a Gentile behind the Sorig. Uh, if you remember when we were in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about the dividing wall. The wall of separation has been taken down. Paul there is writing about, it, it was actually part of the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount, that if you were in the court of the Gentiles, anybody could go to that part. But there was about a waist-high wall as you got close to the temple, to the temple proper, that was called the Sorig. And, and you were not allowed, if you were a Gentile, to go past that wall. You could only do it if you were a Jew. So they accused him of taking a Gentile Back, you know, backstage. <laughs> they accused him of taking a guy that wasn't Jewish back there. And it was a false accusation. But as a result, he was brutally beaten. Remember, he got taken before the, the soldiers. They haul him in and they're about ready to give him 40 lashes and all his 39, whatever it was. And, and he lets them know that he's a Roman citizen. Again, dual citizenship. Way beneficial for him. He was free to move about the empire. Not like the Jews. They were pretty well confined to where they needed to be. But he had a lot of freedom and he had rights that the average Jew didn't. Remember, so when he got arrested and beaten, they were about to beat him more. And he said, I'm a Jew, very much like he did in Philippi when he was there with the Philippian jailer and all that. They found out that he was a Roman citizen and they backed off. Well, they didn't back off totally. He ended up continuing to be incarcerated. They took him down to a place called Caesarea Maritima, which is North of modern-day Tel Aviv, in that day it was Joppa, a seaport on the Mediterranean Sea. Beautiful city. Uh, when Stacey and I were in Israel, we went there. I didn't go the second time I went with a, a group of pastors, but we went to Caesarea Maritima, and, and what an uh, architectural masterpiece. I mean, this was a seaport palace that Herod built, so he could go hang out at the ocean. Uh, and I mean, it extends out over the sea. And he built this huge arena there. That's where Paul was examined by the governors and, and all of that. So he gets taken there. He's there for a couple of years. It takes him a while to get around to him. Probably under house arrest. Uh, he's examined by the governors Felix. And then uh, Festus succeeded Felix. And he's examined by him. Festus is pretty rough on him. And at the end of his examination, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. That's what bought him a ticket to Rome. And so after a harrowing journey, uh, shipwrecked on Malta and all of that that we read about in the book of Acts, he would arrive in Rome. Finally, he would get to go in chains. He'd be chained to a Roman guard, to a Praetorian guard, would spend a couple of years under house arrest uh, in a rented house. That's where he wrote, we call them the prison epistles, four letters. He'd be released for a short time most likely. Some people conjecture that that's when he went to Spain, but there's nothing in God's word that says that he went. It says he wanted to. And then he would be rearrested under Nero's rule and executed, probably in about 65 to 67. So that's who wrote this. That's a brief bio on the apostle Paul. What a fascinating man. What a man of of great integrity. What a man of, of just being yielded to the work of God in his life wholly devoted to carrying out the ministry God had given him. The next thing we want to look at is where these things took place. I have a slide. Yeah, it's up. Good. Uh, As far as that goes, if you look on this slide, you'll, you'll see that in the top left, towards the top left, is Rome. 
the, the Italian peninsula coming down into the Mediterranean Sea. Bottom right is Jerusalem, about 1,400 miles between the two cities. Now, as I mentioned, this letter wasn't written from Jerusalem. It was written from Corinth. And you can see there that Corinth is to the south and to the east of Rome, about 600 plus miles away. So just to give you a little point of reference, you go across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus. That's where Ephesus was. It's the only four cities I really wanted to include on this map. I didn't want to make it overly complicated. But just so that you have a point of reference. It's important, guys. One of the things I like to do when I teach is to make sure that we're located geographically. These are real events that happen to real people in real places. All right. So, yeah, I know that we're venturing into a geography lesson here, but it's important that we understand and that we're locked in to the, 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 the reality of this letter and where it took place, to whom it was written, where it was written from. And we understand that. I'm going to get into a thing on, on uh, when it was written here in a minute. Uh, fascinating. In chapter 16, we're told in, in Romans 16 that he was staying in the house of Gaius. And he was a wealthy Corinthian guy uh, that Paul had baptized. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, that, and he probably wrote this, I would say it was probably in the winter of the year 57. Now, I want to do a little bit of uh, Bible investigative work and share that with you. I, I was having a lot of fun with this as I was rooting around in the scripture the last couple of days. And uh, I want to let you know how I come to that conclusion. Because God's word, if you're willing to spend the time, you can you can check these things out and you can see that there's a very very narrow slot of time where this letter could have been written. So uh, with that, in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, we see that Pris- there's a couple named Priscilla and Aquila there, right? Now, it says in 18, chapter 18, verse 2, that the emperor Claudius had banished Christians from Rome. And we're told from secular literature, Josephus and others, that that was about 52 to 54 AD. It was the early persecution of the church. The great persecution would be mounted in the, in the mid-60s and, and beyond. But persecution was breaking out. Claudius didn't like the Christians, and so he said, leave. They left Rome, and we're told that in 18, Acts 18.2, that Paul meets on his first missionary journey, he meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. So we know that it's, 52, 54, somewhere in there. Now, they get together. Paul realizes that there's a call of God on this couple's lives. And so he sort of incorporates them into his ministry. And he leaves Corinth now to go to Ephesus. He ends up planting a church in Ephesus. And then he is called away from Ephesus to continue his journeys and his evangelistic work. But he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. Okay, so they're there now in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, we see Paul returning now on his second missionary journey to the city of Ephesus. We looked at that when we studied Ephesians. And he stays there nearly three years. Remember, if you remember our studies in Ephesus, he's there. He's teaching people. He's equipping the saints. He's in the synagogue and things get kind of sideways with the leaders there. And so they end up founding the school of Tyrannus. And he, he stays in this school and he's, he's equipping people, no doubt sending them out. Uh, great evangelistic work going on in Ephesus. The city explodes with Christianity while he's there. 
and so he's there for nearly three years. It was then that he wrote 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus. So he writes the letter to Corinth, as I showed you on the map, and he sends this letter off to, to the, the Corinthians. And in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he sends a salutation from Priscilla and Aquila. They're still in Ephesus. So we know that they're there years later. All right. Now, going back to Romans, and, and I know this is a little twisted. Catch the, catch the video or the, the podcast if you want to really root this out. But in chapter 16 of Romans, verses 3 and 4, Paul directs the church to, quote, greet Priscilla and Aquila. He says, who had for my life laid down their own necks. So this is a couple, when he writes to Rome, they were already well known to him. So this had to have been after the decree by Claudius, and after the time that they spent together in Ephesus, so it was at least three years from 52 to 54 when that decree went out. There are other things, and I'm not going to take the time to get into it, that direct us to sort of hone in on. It was probably in the winter of 57 or 58. Uh, but I, I love doing Bible detect. I go into all that detail just to tell you it was written at that time. But God's word has answers. And if we're willing to spend the time, I just think it's fun. I love doing that Bible detective work and rooting around trying to figure out, okay, so if this happened then, so when did that happen there and all of that. So anyway, the next thing we want to look at is the purpose for this letter. Why was it written? Now, one thing that I think is, is fascinating, excuse me, um, is many of Paul's letters were situational. For instance, 1 Corinthians Second Corinthians, even uh, situational. <laughs> we know if you read First Corinthians, it's a letter of correction. It's like if if they could do it wrong, the Corinthians were doing it wrong, and so he writes a letter of correction. That's the situation that they're in. Second uh, Corinthians, he writes to correct the, the the admonition he gave him. In First Corinthians, he like for instance with the guy that was with his stepmother and. All of that, he says, you know, deliver his soul over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be saved and all that. Evidently, the guy repented and in Second Corinthians, he's writing him back situationally and saying, let him back in. He suffered enough. He repented. Now, restore him and, and all of that. So that's situational. Now, also in First and Second Timothy, same kind of thing. Paul, his protege, a young pastor named Timothy, uh, Paul is wanting to continue to further equip him he writes him First and Second Timothy. They're called pastoral epistles for a reason, letters to a pastor. He wants to continue to pour into Timothy and to give him pertinent instruction on what it is to be a leader in the church. So that's situational. Romans, on the other hand, there is nothing in this book that indicates that there is an existing situation that existed with the church. It's not situational. I want to talk to you for a minute about the difference between teaching and preaching. And yeah, I often say, yeah, I preach on Sundays. It's, it's kind of like saying, yeah, if I want to have a soda, I'll go have a Coke. I, it's, it's sort of a generic term. But technically, there is a difference between the two. Here's a quote I came across. This is a commentator with the last name. His last name is Hole, H-O-L-E. <laughs> He's a good commentator. Um, been around for a while. Uh, he says this, he says, it's one thing to carry the gospel as a herald to sinful men and quite another to set it forth in detail for the establishment of the saints. 
The former is the work of the evangelist and the latter that of the teacher. If we wish to hear Paul preaching the gospel, whether to Jews or to the heathen, we turn to the book of Acts. If we wish to hear him instruct us in its fullness and glorious power, we read the epistle to the Romans. There's a difference. Paul evangelized the lost and he preached to them. He also strengthened and, and, and taught the churches. He had two sides to his ministry. He was a great evangelist, gifted evangelist. He would march into a town and pretty soon people are coming. He also had a pastor's heart. He also was a gifted teacher. And what he's doing in Romans is teaching. Like I said, it's a letter to the church. He's not evangelizing here. And yes, it's evangelistic in some wonderful ways. I mean, you know, the Romans road and all that stuff. You know, we've looked at that. But the point is, is that this is an in-depth teaching for the church. The sixth thing we want to look at is what's the theme of this book, of this letter. In verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1, Paul gives the theme. Makes it pretty easy. Uh, and, and it says this in verse 16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's the theme. Understanding that he's talking about salvation here. Uh, in verse 16, he, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Salvation is the great inclusive word of the gospel. I mean, we use it a lot. Are they saved? Are they unsaved? It encompasses all that is meant by redemption. We've just finished the book of Ruth. We've looked in some detail at what the whole aspect of redemption is. As we looked at Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, the one who redeemed, who purchased Ruth, purchased the product. He was the one. And we looked at how Jesus is the one who purchased us, who redeemed us. Salvation is part and parcel to redemption. In the New Testament, there are three tenses that salvation is used in. And it's important. It's worth taking the time to briefly look at them this morning. The first is past tense. Believers have been saved from the penalty of sin. And I have here in my notes, and we are safe. I do believe that the Bible teaches eternal security. I love what Pastor Chuck Smith said one time. He said, when people ask me about eternal security, usually my answer is don't ask me about yours. <laughs> I just think that that's perfect. As for me, I'm secure eternally. That doesn't mean that people who are living their lives on a question mark are automatically in or because they've recited some creed. No, this is, this is the just shall live by faith here. So believers have been saved from the penalty of sin. Presently, believers are being saved from the power of sin. Now, that's the work that God is doing in each of us, the power of sin. We're being saved from that, from sin's dominion in our lives and from the habits that it produces. We've been given a new nature. We don't always operate out of that new nature, do we? That's the process of sanctification. We're going to talk about sanctification by faith, major doctrine in the Christian church, major topic in the book of Romans. And we'll get into that. Lastly, future tense. 
believers are to be saved in the sense of, in that day, from the presence of sin. We still live in the presence of sin. We've been delivered from the power, from the penalty of sin. We're being worked on by the Holy Spirit from the power of sin, delivered from the power of sin. In that day, the presence of sin will be done away when that which is perfect has come, when this corruptible puts on incorruption. That's the promise. It's when we're entirely conformed to Christ. Right now we're being conformed. In that day, we will have been conformed. It's important for me to note too, gang, that as we go through this book and and even this morning, I want to pause for a minute and look at what is God's heart in all of this. We can get bogged down in doctrine and sort of forget the main thing. All of this is born of the fact that God has a love for you, a love for me. That's an infinite love. That's why I say I don't fully understand it. I I live in a finite world, a finite body. And he has an infinite love for me. I want to receive all of that love that he has. All of this is done for the love that he has for us. As we look at salvation, it is always by grace through faith. It's a free gift. It's stated, it's restated a couple of times here in this book. As we look at the grace of God, that it's a gift. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's important to note that grace is given by faith and it is wholly separated from our works. Imputed righteousness, imparted righteousness, both are true. We'll talk about that in a minute. Are the result that he shares his holiness. He shares his moral attributes with us. The divine order is first salvation. After that, the works follow. You'll always act on what you believe. Universal principle, you will always act on what you believe. It doesn't matter what it is. If you believe that your car's out of gas, you're going to act on it. You're not going to even try to start it. Well, maybe you will. <laughs> My point is, is that we always act on what we, we will. And when it comes to the things of God, if I truly, if I have genuine faith, I'm going to act on it. It's going to shape my life. And it does. My, my faith, my trust in him shapes the way I live. And it should. Now, as we progress on here, I want to look at the fact that, that we've looked at, we studied a couple of books ago, several books ago now, we studied the book of Hebrews. There are two pillars. I look at them as pillars upon which the rest of the New Testament rests. Actually, all of God's word, but specifically the New Testament. And that's the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans. Hebrews reveals the superiority of the Christian faith. Remember when we looked at that, if those of you that were in that study, we looked at what the writer does in Hebrews, whether you think it was Paul or not. Uh, What he does there is he says, look at this, look at, He starts, look at angels. Now look at Jesus. He's better. And he goes on and he bounces back and forth from something in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And then he says, now look at Jesus. He's better. It's a book of contrast. It's a letter to the Hebrew Christians who were struggling in the first century. And it's there to encourage them. Look at the high priest in the old, in in the Mosaic law. Now look at Jesus, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he just goes on and on and on. And he bounces back and forth showing that Christianity is superior 
in every way from Judaism in that context and from other, every other ism that there is. Romans, on the other hand, reveals the necessity of the Christian faith, reveals why we believe what we believe, why it's essential that we have a right understanding because it's all about the person and the work of Christ. You change that. You change who Jesus is, and many do. You change the whole thing. You change the work of Christ. Oh, well, and, and I mean, you look at like the, the letter to the churches in Galatia, the whole region of Galatia, it was a circular letter. He writes that to say, look, you've got these guys following you around saying you need to, yeah, it's all fine, good. You can, you're saved by grace, your faith and all that, but you still need to live by the law of Moses. Paul is hopping mad when he writes that letter. He's saying, no, 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 you don't. You have to keep the doctrine pure. Romans tells us in no uncertain terms why we believe what we believe. The letter of Romans, it stands as the clearest and most systematic presentation of Christian doctrine in all of the scriptures. As we study this book, my prayer is, and yeah, there are things I'm moving fast this morning. I'm covering a lot of ground. I'm about to cover a lot more. That, that there may be things that are confusing or things that you're not understanding and all that. Please be patient. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate your, your thinking, your understanding. And as we go through and as we unpack each one of these things, my prayer is that we would have a deeper understanding of what that means to the church in general, a greater understanding of how these things apply in our own lives. That's why we study. We don't just do this to be book smart. We do it because we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is what he says in Romans 8, 29. That's the purpose of all of this, that by the Holy Spirit, that we're conformed, that we understand. He's our teacher, we're told in the Gospel of John. And so as we yield ourselves to the work that he wants to do, we'll grow. So don't worry about what you... I have a friend, he said, you know, I don't worry about what I don't understand. I worry about what I do. And that's really, that's a good point. So now I want to take a few minutes and I want to outline, I'm going to go through an outline of the book of Romans. And we're going to, I'm going to look at seven different sections here. It's kind of how I've broken it. There are many people, they outline this different ways and all that. And um, I'm just sticking to the text and uh, breaking this down in what's easiest, I think, for us to look at. Uh, and so, you know, you may have looked at it a different way as far as the outline goes, but the essence of what's being taught stands. The first, uh, as we're looking at chapter one here, is the salutation and the theme of the book uh, in verses one through 17. Uh, he greets the church at Rome in, in verses one through seven, and then he talks about his desire to visit them in verses eight through 15. And then, as I mentioned before, in verses 16 and 17, he gives the theme of the book. It's the gospel of God. Righteousness revealed is another way to look at that. It's an essential ingredient to get to heaven. Now, if you have looked at, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus gives a very lengthy teaching there, but I'll summarize a couple points out of that. One of the things that he said, as he referred to righteousness, now, in Western mindset, we don't really look at the Western, uh, in our Western mindset, we don't look at righteousness as clearly as they did in Judaism or in the East. It's, they, these guys understood that you must possess righteousness in order to get to heaven. 
And what does righteousness mean? It means right living. It means being rightly related to God in this context. So you've got to possess that. Now, the problem that the religious leaders in Jesus's day had was they figured that they could manufacture their own. That's why they had lists and lists and lists of obedience, because that was getting them righteousness. That was getting them right standing with God. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, these guys that lived it all, you'll in no way see the kingdom of heaven. You can't get in on your own righteousness. That's what he's saying. You've got to have my righteousness. Look at the rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus. Look, I've kept all these laws from my youth up. Look at me, man. I am the obedient guy. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Now, he wasn't making a doctrine out of selling everything you have. I've heard that mistaught more than once. What he was saying is for you, Mr. Lawkeeper, there's always going to be one more. For you, your stumbling block is you love your stuff more than me. That's in the way. So he goes right to where this guy was breaking the law. The point is, is that this guy was trying to come on his own righteousness. And Jesus said, it's not enough. It'll never be enough. And that's what we see here in Romans. It's not enough to come in our own. It's the emperor's new clothes. You've got to have his righteousness. It has to be imputed to you. It's a legal transaction. And we'll look at that in depth. And then it has to be imparted to you. And that's how we live. So the gospel of God essentially is righteousness revealed. Essential ingredient for heaven. The second thing we look at here uh, in chapters 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, is what I refer to as the great indictment of humanity. What we see there is nobody gets off. Now, people like to take sections of this and go, aha, you know, because there are sections of this that are very specific. However, you have to look at the whole thing. And yeah, there is a huge area and we're going to cover it. We're going to cover the easy stuff and the tough stuff and everything in between. You know, when, when he talks about people with aberrant sexual practices, you know what? It's sin. And we'll talk about it. But what he does here is systematically condemn every living person. Because you got to see how bad the bad news is before you can fully appreciate how good the good news is. And that's his point. So he starts off with, in verses 118 through 32, with the Gentiles are condemned. That's anybody that's not a Jew. So who does that include? (laughs) You and me. Talks about the cause of the condemnation, and that's willful ignorance. I put my fingers in my ears and and go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. And how much of the world is in that condition? I don't want to hear it. It's willful ignorance. What's the consequence of that? Divine abandonment. Says that God gave them over. He let them go with what they wanted to believe. Serious stuff. The next thing he goes into in chapter two is condemnation of the moralistic person. You can't do enough good stuff. And folks, I have known many moral people. I have known many good people. I mean, we call them good people. He's a good person. He's a good guy. They're a good, you know, 
uh, I really like what they're doing and all of that. But if they don't have Christ, their souls are lost. It's not about being moralistic. As good as that is, I mean, I like being around people that I trust and people that are ethical and they're not lying to me every time I turn around, all of that. But here we see that the condemnation goes to them. The next thing we look at is condemnation of the Jew. Chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. Because the Jew, he didn't keep the law of God. He didn't believe the promises of God. We'll find out, we'll see here that the Jews hated God's choice of Messiah and his method of salvation. They grated their teeth at both. The next thing we look at, wrapping up this whole section on condemnation, is that condemnation spreads to all men. You look at externals versus internals. He talks about circumcision is to no avail. It's an external. And unless you have a changed heart, you don't make it. You're condemned. Easy for us folks, I want to insert this here, to slip into a a sort of a black hat, white hat mentality. And it's something that all of us have to guard against. We can get to a point where we're looking at those terrible sinful people out there. And and pronouncing, you know, God's judgment on them and da-da-da, all of that. And and yeah, that may be the case, but you've got to remember, if it's not for the grace of God resting on your life, on my life, We've all got black hats. And that's part of what he gets to here when he essentially includes every living soul in the fact that we are condemned before God. Jesus, with the woman caught in the act of adultery, she's thrown down in front of him and he begins to write on the ground. I think about that. She was in the temple, the finger of God writing on stone. Seen that before? Yeah. At any rate, um, he begins to write on the ground and with the oldest first, they begin to drop their rocks and they walk off. And he says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. The reason why he didn't condemn her is because she was already condemned. And he was there to offer her a changed life, not to condemn. Where she stood condemned already before she ever showed up there. The third thing we look at here is righteousness imputed. This is a legal transaction. This is justification by faith. All right? We're going to look at the doctrine. It's a major doctrine in, in the Christian church, justification by faith, that we are justified by faith alone, justified before God. Yeah, I've heard the saying before, just, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And I, and I agree with that, but it goes beyond that. We are fully justified in the eyes of God by faith in Christ, by faith in the finished work of Christ. So as we look at righteousness imputed, that is the transaction to where I am literally clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at me, he sees me that way. He does not see me in my sin. He does not see me in any other light than possessing the righteousness of his son. That's why Jesus said, yours has got to be more than the scribes and the Pharisees or you can't get there. He says, now you can get there because by simple faith in Christ, that righteousness has been imputed. We'll look at that. As we get into chapter three, he describes what righteousness is and then he illustrates it. And he goes into, he talks about Abraham. He talks about Abraham's faith being apart from works. And that by his faith, what was reckoned to him? Righteousness. His faith was apart from circumcision. 
which was the mark of the covenant. It's a big deal. He says, no, it's apart from that. He says, your faith is apart from the law because the law hadn't even come yet. He says that Abraham's faith was in God. And that's what the difference was. In chapter five, we look at the benefits of righteousness as we're now justified by faith, justified in the eyes of God. And then he applies it in chapter five. We call it, if you want to get into technical terms, guys, it's called the doctrine of federal headship. Simply what that means, you don't have to remember that, but he says by one man, through one man's offense, sin came to all mankind. He's talking about Adam. He's talking about when man fell. He's talking about that nature that we inherit from him. But that, so in that sense, Adam was the head of the human race. That's why it's called federal headship. Very much like President Biden. Well, never mind. Bad example. Anyway, very much like uh, some president would be the head of the United States. So he's the federal head. He represents us in the world. Well, he's talking about Adam represents us in that context. But Jesus is the second Adam. And so by one man's offense, sin entered mankind, and by one man's righteous act, sin was dealt with once for all. That's the doctrine of federal headship. We're going to look at that. We'll look at that in depth. And it's just a a powerful passage. Fourth thing we want to look at is righteousness imparted, and that's sanctification by faith. Now, righteousness imputed is the legal transaction. That's where I am declared righteous. It is done. It is part of the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, that I now, by simple faith in the finished work of Christ, his righteousness is imputed to me. It's transferred to my account in never-ending supply. Now, righteousness imparted is sanctification by faith. And yes, positionally, I have been sanctified. We'll look at that. Two aspects to sanctification, which means holyfication. The word, the Latin word for holy is sanctus. All right, so you could actually say this is holyfication. <laughs> it's kind of a weird-sounding word. But it's essentially the process through which I am both declared holy in God's eyes, the saints, holy ones, and I am being made holy. That's the impartation part. That's where he's imparting holiness to me. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, my life gets holier. My life is, I'm walking it out. I'm being practically sanctified. He goes into, in chapter 6, the principles of sanctification. He talks about liberty versus license. Look at that. Shall we continue in sin? Remember, they came to him and said, well, in view of God's grace, hey, I got an idea. How about we just continue to sin? And he says, God forbid. That's how it's rendered in King James. Or may it never be, New American Standard. In other words, no, (laughs) that's not how it works. Uh, and, And then he goes into slavery. He talks about, who are you a slave to? In chapter 6, are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to righteousness? Are you a slave to the old nature or the new? And he continues that theme on into chapter 7, where he talks about the practice of sanctification. He talks about the two natures. Now, in chapter 7, this is that great chapter where the Apostle Paul is saying, man, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. It's like sin alive in my members, and I just, I don't know. And he just goes through this whole deal. And there are people, there there are scholars that say, oh, well, that was Paul before he came to Christ. I don't think so. I think that I identify with the battle that he puts forth there. 
And, and so is the believer under law? He, he, he goes through that. Is the law evil? Is the law the cause of death? He's talking about all of that there. How can I resolve the struggle within myself? We'll look at that exhaustively. We'll take a look and see that struggle that we all have. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with that old nature. He talks about the power of the sanctified life in chapter 8. He talks about living in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. The tallest peak, as I mentioned, climbing the mountain up until now, and now getting to the peak and experience, seeing what God's will is for us to experience as believers, the freedom and the power that we have that's given by the Holy Spirit. We'll go into, we'll talk about emancipated living, four E's here, emancipated living, exalted living, expectant living, exultant living, where we just praise. The fifth thing we want to look at here is righteousness vindicated. We're going to look at Israel. So Paul goes, like I said, he goes, these first eight chapters, very doctrinal, very um, intense and very intentional as far as what this looks like for a Christian. And then he, is, he, does, he pauses because he remembers his countrymen and he has a great burden for his fellow Israelites. And he talks about that. He's filled with sorrow. He said, you know, I, I would like that if I could lay this down, that they could be saved. I mean, he loves his fellow countrymen. We're going to talk about Israel's past. That the, the, They were the elect of God. They were the one, they were to be a light unto the nations. That was God's calling upon Israel's national life. We're going to talk about Paul's sorrow over the way that they handled that that they rejected Messiah. Talk about God's sovereignty. In chapter 10, we'll look at Israel's presence and that their present condition is rejection of Messiah. That's how it is today, by and large. Yes, there is a righteous remnant, but we'll look at their rejection. He doesn't stop there though, because there is hope. And in Romans chapter 11, we're going to look at Israel's future. We're going to look at salvation. And it's not to a nation. It's not to a group. It's to a group of individuals. And that God will raise up from that country a righteous remnant that do recognize Messiah. And we'll see, folks, that, and you know, there are big groups out there that that adhere to what is referred to as replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel in the plan of God, that the church has replaced, that the promises of God now go past Israel and go to the church and all of that. No, we have our own and it's enough. He is not finished with that nation. They are still his darling. Got to be careful. That's why he says, those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. And we support Israel. The sixth thing we'll look at is righteousness applied. After we get through the section on doctrine and then we get through the section on Israel we get to the part where Paul just simply begins to apply all that he has taught up until now. And I love Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, by the mercies of Christ, what are the mercies? Everything he's taught. He says, I beseech you. Beseech you means I beg you, please, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's no good to be a dead sacrifice to God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is wholly acceptable to him, is your reasonable service of worship. 
It's an act of worship when you surrender your life to the master's use. We'll look at how, as he's applying these things, at righteousness in relation to ourselves. Look at what it is, how we behave in relationship to the church, to the ecclesia, in relation to society in in chapter 12. And then in, in chapter 13, in relation to government. And I've been in that passage a few times the last few months. In chapter 14, Paul goes, he talks about how we walk in the righteousness of Christ with other believers. He gives a series of exhortations in chapter 14. He says, don't judge one another. Don't do that. How often is that ignored? And churches get fouled up and tripped up. He says, don't hinder one another. You know, I've said many times before, folks, God has his own agenda for each one of us. And we err greatly if we presume to know his agenda for another. You may see some glaring fault in a brother or a sister. Aha, they really need to get that straightened out. No, you let God work on them in his time, in his way, with his agenda. I I, I have to say it again. I, I will never forget being at a men's camp out one time. And there was a guy there that was leaving this campground and he'd go out to, and he smoked cigarettes and he was going out and smoking. And just as the camp out was getting going, it was a big, huge multi-church campground or camp uh, event. And, and you know, there was a whole bunch of us there, like 300 guys. And, and this guy said, hey, can I say something? And um, the, the lead pastor said, yeah, go ahead. And the guy stood up. He said, I just want to ask you guys to stop getting on me about smoking cigarettes. He said, I'm respectful. I go outside the camp. I'm not bothering anybody. You guys keep on trying to bust my chops about that. But let me tell you something. God has delivered me from heroin addiction. I just recently got my wife and my kids back. And I just hung my head and started to pray for him and pray for every critical hearted man there. We got to be careful that we don't presume to know God's agenda for another. And that includes the person sitting next to you, especially if they're your spouse. Leave them alone. Let God do the work. Good advice. He says, don't judge one another. Don't hinder one another. He says, do imitate Christ. That's what he wants us to do. So he wraps up this letter with uh, personal messages and, and a benediction. We call it a benediction. That's the close. What's interesting is he starts in chapter 15, verse 14, and he goes all the way through chapter 16, verse 27. And I think, right on, Paul, I totally relate. Uh, you know how many times I start to close a message when I'm teaching? <laughs> but it, it is, he closes like three times. He starts to close, and he goes, oh yeah, one more thing. He talks about his plans, he talks about his, and then he goes into his personal greetings, and then he, he does a concluding admonition. He goes, oh yeah, let me tell you this, <laughs> this last thing here, and then he goes into the benediction. That's the book of Romans in half an hour, <laughs> or an hour, whatever it is. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how excited I am to teach this letter, to teach this book, for us to mine the scripture together, for us to yield ourselves as, as, as open to the working, the conforming work of the Holy Spirit, I guarantee you on the basis of God's word, you will grow. You go grow closer to the Lord as you apply these things, as we apply these things together, 
when we're closer in our relationships to one another, perhaps renewed purpose, understanding for where we fit into the scheme of things here. So I'm going to wrap up. See, I thought I was done. I'm going to wrap up with, I just want to read the first seven verses of Romans chapter one. I'm not going to do an exposition on it this morning. I just simply want to read it. And let's just let the words soak in and we will come back and start unpacking them next week. Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his holy prophets or through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? There is so much there. I can't wait to start just taking this apart. Um, but we're out of time, so it'll have to wait. Uh, the thing I want to, I, I, that I camp on here is I look at, he says, to all who are beloved of God. And I don't know where you're at this morning. Perhaps you've been struggling in your walk. Uh, perhaps if you're watching online or even here, I, I don't know the heart. God's knocking on the door to your heart and saying, I want to have more of you. You can have all of me. I want more of you. Perhaps you don't know Christ. Perhaps you've never come. Perhaps your life is burdened, weighted down with the weights of the things that are going on around us in this world. It's flying out of control. And yet he says, you can have real rest, real peace. It's not found in a doctrine. It's found in a person. His name is Jesus. He truly existed 2000 years ago. He went to the cross to die for your sins and for the sins of humanity. Because he lived a sinless life, death couldn't hold him. And three days later, he resurrected from the dead. Yes, it was a sign that he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the one that could die in our place. But he also, we're told, resurrected with power. And that is the power that he gives to each one who comes by faith and says yes to him. So if you've not ever entered into a relationship with Christ, it's a simple prayer. Something like, God, I, I recognize my sinfulness and I ask you to forgive me for my sins. I believe that Jesus died in my place, that he died for my sins to give me life, to give me power. And if you do that, Jesus called people publicly. Tell somebody, let someone know. It'll strengthen you. It's not just an emotional act. This is, it's the greatest decision anybody could ever make. It's the beginning of making sense of your life, both for now and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we're just this brief look at the book of Romans, just cracking it open. Lord, I'm excited. I pray that that excitement would spread to the people in this church, the people that are watching this online, perhaps listening on the podcast, Lord, that, that we would be excited about learning your word, about, that we'd be excited about 
just understanding you more. Or I pray specifically that it would, that the result of that would be a greater love for you, a greater love for one another, a greater understanding, Lord, of your kingdom and all that you're about. So as we yield to your work, I pray, Father, as we leave here today, that, that your word, having gone out, we know that it won't come back void, that you'd bring to our remembrance the things that you want us to dwell on, the things that you want us to understand, to perhaps hang on to and grow through in the days and in the week ahead. So we thank you for the work you're doing. We pray that you would find people, vessels, hearts that are yielded to your sanctifying work. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.